Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Continuing Chapter 5. Anigo paced the cliff edge, finger snapping. Fifty feet below him now, the man in black still climbed. Anigo's impatience was beginning to bubble beyond control. He stared down at the slow progress. Find a crevice. Jam in the hand. Find another crevice. Jam in the other hand. 48 feet to go. Anigo slapped his sword handle, and his finger snapping began to go faster. He examined the hooded climber, half hoping he would be six-fingered, but no. This one had the proper accompaniment to digits. 47 feet to go now. Now 46. Hello there! Anigo hollered when he could not wait any longer. The man in black glanced up and grunted. <laughs> I've been watching you. The man in black nodded. Slow going, Anigo said. Look, I don't mean to be rude, the man in black said finally, but I'm rather busy just now, so try not to distract me. I'm sorry, Anigo said. The man in black grunted again. <laughs> I don't suppose you can speed things up, Anigo said. If you want to speed things up so much, the man in black said, clearly quite angry now, you can lower a rope or a tree branch or find some other helpful thing to do. I could do that, Anigo agreed, but I don't think you'd accept my help since I'm only waiting up here so I can kill you. That does put a damper on our relationship, the man in black said then. I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. 43 feet left. 41. I could give you our word as a Spaniard, Anigo said. No good, the man in black replied. I've known too many Spaniards. I'm going crazy up here, Anigo said. Anytime you want to change places, I'd be too happy to accept. 39 feet. And resting. The man in black just hung in space feet dangling, the entire weight of his body supported by the strength of his hand jammed into the crevice. Come along now, Anigo pleaded. It's been a bit of a climb, the man in black explained, and I'm weary. I'll be fine in a quarter hour or so. Another quarter hour? Inconceivable. Look, we've got a piece of extra rope up here we didn't need when we made our original climb. I'll just drop it down to you and you'll grab hold and I'll pull and... No good, the man in black repeated. You might pull, but then again, you also just might let go, which, since you're in a hurry to kill me, will certainly do the job quickly. But you wouldn't have ever known I was going to kill you if I hadn't been the one to tell you. Doesn't that let you know I can be trusted? Frankly, and I hope you're not insulted, no. There's no way you'll trust me? Nothing comes to mind. Suddenly, Anigo raised his right hand high. I swear on the soul of Domingo Montoya, you'll reach the top alive. The man in black was silent for a long time. Then he looked up. I do not know this Domingo of yours, but something in your tone says I must believe you. Throw me the rope. Anigo quickly tied it around a rock, dropped it over. The man in black grabbed hold, hung suspended alone in space. Anigo pulled. In a moment, the man in black was beside him. Thank you, the man in black said, and he sank down on the rock. Anigo sat alongside him. Well, wait until you're ready, he said. The man in black breathed deeply. Again, thank you. Why have you followed us? You carry baggage of much value. We have no intention of selling, Anigo said. That's your business. And yours? The man in black made no reply. Anigo stood and walked away, surveying the terrain over which they would battle. It was a splendid plateau, really, filled with trees for dodging around and roots for tripping over and small rocks for losing your balance on and boulders for leaping off of if you could climb on fast enough and, and bathing everything, the entire spot, moonlight. One cannot ask for a more suitable testing ground for a duel, Anigo decided. 
It had everything, including the marvelous cliffs of one end, beyond which was a wonderful thousand-foot drop, always something to bear in mind when one was planning tactics. It was perfect. The place was perfect. Provided the man in black of fence. Really, fence. Anigo did then what he always did before a duel. He took the great sword from his scabbard and touched the side of the blade to his face two times. Once along one scar, once along the other. Then he examined the man in black. A fine sailor, yes. A mighty climber, no question. Courageous, without a doubt. But could he fence? Really fence? Please, Inigo thought. It's been so long since I've been tested. Let this man test me. Let him be a glorious swordsman. Let him be both quick and fast, smart and strong. Give him a matchless mind for tactics. A background the equal of mine. Please, please, it's been so long. Let him be a master. I have my breath back now, the man in black said from the rock. Thank you for allowing me my rest. We best get on with it then, Inigo replied. The man in black stood. You seem a decent fellow, Inigo said. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow, answered the man in black. I hate to die. But one of us must, Inigo said. Begin. And so saying, he took the six-finger sword and put it into his left hand. He had begun all his duels left-handed lately. It was good practice for him, and although he was the only living wizard left in the world with his regular hand, the right, still, he was more than worthy with his left. Perhaps 30 men alive were his equal when he used his left. Perhaps as many as 50. Perhaps as few as 10. The man in black was also left-handed, and that warmed an ego. It made things fairer. His weakness against the other man's strength, all to the good. They touched swords, and the man in black immediately began the Agrippa defense, which Inigo felt was sound, considering the rocky terrain, for the Agrippa kept the feet stationary at first, and made the chance of slipping minimal. Naturally, he countered with Capo Pharaoh, which surprised the man in black, but he defended well, quickly shifting out of Agrippa and taking the attack himself, using the principles of Tabot. Inigo had to smile. No one had taken the attack against him in so long, and it was thrilling. He let the man in black advance, let him build up courage, retreating gracefully between some trees, letting his bonetti defense keep him safe from harm. Then his legs flicked, and he was behind the nearest tree, and the man in black had not expected it and was slow reacting. Inigo flashed immediately out from the tree, attacking himself now, and the man in black retreated, stumbled got his balance, continued moving away. Inigo was impressed with the quickness of the balance return. Most men the size of the man in black would have gone down, or, at the least, fallen to one hand. The man in black did neither. He simply quick-stepped, wrenched his body erect, continued fighting. They were moving parallel to the cliffs now, and the trees were behind them mostly. The man in black was slowly being forced towards a group of large boulders. For Inigo was anxious to see how well he moved when quarters were close, when he could not thrust or parry with total freedom. He continued to force, and then the boulders were surrounding them. Inigo suddenly threw his body against a nearby rock, rebounded off it with stunning force, lunging with incredible speed. First blood was his. He had pinked the man in black, grazed him only, along the left wrist. A scratch was all, but it was bleeding. Immediately, the man in black hurried his retreat, getting his position away from the boulders, getting out into the open of the plateau. Anigo followed, not bothering to try and check the other man's flight. There would always be time for that later. Then the man in black launched his greatest assault. It came with no warning, and the speed and strength of it were terrifying. His blade flashed in the light again and again, and at first, Anigo was only too delighted to retreat. He was not entirely familiar with the style of the attack. It was mostly McBone, but there were snatches of Capo Pharaoh thrown in, and he continued moving backwards while he concentrated on the enemy, figuring the best way to stop the assault. The man in black kept advancing, and Inigo was aware that behind him now, he was coming closer and closer to the edge of the cliffs. But that could not have concerned him less. 
The important thing was to outthink the enemy. Find his weakness. Let him have his moment of exaltation. Suddenly, as the cliffs came ever nearer, Inigo realized the fault in the attack that was flashing at him. A simple Tabalt maneuver would destroy it entirely. But he didn't want to give it away too soon. Let the other man have the triumphal moment longer. Life allowed so few. The cliffs were very close behind him now. Inigo continued to retreat. The man in black continued advancing. Then Inigo countered with the Tabot. And the man in black blocked it. He blocked it. Inigo repeated the Tabot move. And again it didn't work. He switched to Capo Ferro. He tried Bonetti. He went to Febreze. In desperation, he began to move use only twice by Sanct. Nothing worked. The man in black kept attacking, and the cliffs were almost there. Inigo never panicked. Never came close. But he decided some things very quickly, because there was no time for long consultations. And what he decided was that although the man in black was slow in reacting to moves behind trees, and not much good at all amidst boulders, when movement was restricted, yet out in the open, where there was space, he was a terror. A left-handed black mass terror. You're most excellent, he said. His rear foot was at the cliff edge. He could retreat no more. Thank you, the man in black replied. I've worked very hard to become so. You're better than I am, Inigo admitted. So it seems. But if that's true, then why are you smiling? Because, Inigo answered, I know something you don't know. And what is that? asked the man in black. I'm not left-handed. Inigo replied, and with those words, he all but threw the six-fingered sword into his right hand, and the tide of the battle turned. The man in black retreated before the slashing of the great sword. He tried to sidestep, tried to parry, tried to somehow escape the doom that was now inevitable. But there was no way. He could block fifty thrusts, the fifty-first flicked through, and now his left arm was bleeding. He could thwart thirty reposts, but not the thirty-first. And now his shoulder bled. The wounds were not yet grave, but they kept on coming as they dodged across the stones. And then the man in black found himself amidst the trees, and that was bad for him. So he all but fled before Inigo's onslaught. And then he was in the open again, but Inigo kept coming. Nothing could stop him. And then the man in black was back among the boulders, and that was even worse for him than the trees. And he shouted out in frustration and practically ran to where there was open space again. But there was no dealing with the wizard, and slowly, again, the deadly cliffs became a factor in the fight. Only now, it was the man in black who was being forced to doom. He was brave, and he was strong, and the cuts did not make him bad for mercy. And he showed no fear behind his black mask. You're amazing, he cried, as the eagle increased the already blinding speed of the blade. Thank you. It has not come without effort. The death moment was at hand now. Again and again, Inigo thrust forward, and again and again, the man in black managed to ward off the attacks. But each time it was harder, and the strength in Inigo's wrist was endless, and he only thrust them more fiercely, and soon the man in black grew weak. You cannot tell it, he said then, because I wear a cape and a mask. But I'm smiling now. Why? Because I'm not left-handed either said the man in black, and he too switched hands, and now the battle was finally joined. And Inigo began to retreat. Who are you? he screamed. No one of import, another lover of the blade. I must know. Get used to disappointment. They flashed along the open plateau now, and the blades were both invisible, but oh, the earth trembled, and oh, the sky shook, and Inigo was losing. He tried to make for the trees, but the man in black would have none of it. He tried retreating to the boulders, but that was denied him too. And in the open, unthinkable as it was, the man in black was superior. Not much, but in a multitude of tiny ways, he was of a slightly higher quality. A hair quicker, a fraction stronger, a speck faster. Not really much at all, but it was enough. They met in center plateau for the final assault. Neither man conceded anything. The sound of metal clashing metal rose. 
A final burst of energy burst through Onigo's veins and he made every attempt, tried every trick, used every hour of every day of his years of experience. But he was blocked by the man in black. He was shackled by the man in black. He was baffled, thwarted, muzzled, beaten by the man in black. A final flick and the great six-fingered sword went flying from his hand. Anigo stood there, helpless. Then he dropped to his knees, bowed his head, closed his eyes. Do it quickly, he said. May my hands fall from my wrist before I kill an artist like yourself, said the man in black. I would as soon destroy Da Vinci. However, and here he clubbed Anigo's head with the butt of his sword. Since I can't have you following me either, please understand that I hold you in the highest respect. He struck once more, and the Spaniard fell unconscious. The man in black quickly tied Inigo's hands around a tree and left him there for a moment, sleeping and helpless. Then he sheathed his sword, picked up the Sicilian's trail, and raced into the night. He has beaten Inigo, the Turk said, not quite sure he wanted to believe it, but positive that the news was sad. He liked Inigo. Inigo was the only one who wouldn't laugh when Fezzik asked him to play rhymes. They were hurrying along a mountainous path on the way to the Gilder frontier. The path was narrow and strewn with rocks like cannonballs, so the Sicilian had a terrible time keeping up. Fezzik carried Buttercup lightly on his shoulders. She was still tied hand and foot. I didn't hear you. Say it again, the Sicilian called out, so Fezzik waited for the hunchback to catch up to him. See? Fezzik pointed then. Far down at the very bottom of the mountain path, the man in black could be seen running. Anigo was beaten. Inconceivable, exploded the Sicilian. Fezzik never dared disagree with the hunchback. I'm so stupid, Fezzik nodded. Anigo has not lost to the man in black. He has defeated him. And to prove it, he's put on all the Man in Black's clothes and masks and hoods and boots and gained 80 pounds. The Sicilian squinted down towards the running figure. Fool, he hurled at the Turk. After all these years, can't you tell Anigo when you see him? That isn't Anigo. I'll never learn, the Turk agreed. If there's ever a question about anything, you can always count on me to get it wrong. Anigo must have slipped or been tricked or otherwise unfairly beaten. That's the only conceivable explanation. Conceivable believable, the giant thought. Only he didn't dare say it out loud. Not to the Sicilian. He might have whispered it to Anigo late at night, but that was before Anigo was dead. He also might have whispered heavable, thievable, weavable, but that was as far as he got before the Sicilian started talking again. And that always meant he had to pay very strict attention. Nothing angered the hunchback as quickly as catching Fezzik thinking. Since he barely imagined someone like Fezzik capable of thought, he never asked what was on his mind, because he couldn't have cared less. If he had found out Fezzik was making rhymes, he would have laughed and then found new ways to make Fezzik suffer. Untie her feet, the Sicilian commanded. Fezzik put the princess down and ripped the ropes apart that bound her legs. Then he rubbed her ankle so she could walk. The Sicilian grabbed her immediately and yanked her away. Catch up with us quickly, the Sicilian said. Instructions? Fezzik called out, almost panicked. He hated being left on his own like this. Finish him! Finish! Finish him! The Sicilian was getting peeved. Succeed, since Inigo failed us. But I can't fence. I, I don't know how to fence. Your way. The Sicilian could barely control himself now. Oh, yes, good. My way. Thank you, Vizzini, Fezzik said to the hunchback, then summoning all his courage. I need a hint. You're always saying how you understand force, how force belongs to you. Use it. I don't care how. Wait from behind there, he pointed to a sharp bend in the mountain path, and crush his head like an eggshell. He pointed to the cannonball-sized rocks. I could do that, yes, Fezzik said. He nodded. He was marvelous at throwing heavy things. It just doesn't seem very sportsmanlike, doesn't it? The Sicilian lost control. It was terrifying when he did it. With most people, they scream and holler and jump around. With Vizzini, 
it was different. He got very, very quiet, and his voice sounded like it came from a dead throat, and his eyes turned to fire. I tell you this, and I tell it once. Stop the man in black. Stop him for good and all. If you fail, there'll be no excuses. I will find another giant. Please don't desert me, Fezzik said. Then do as you are told. He grabbed hold of Buttercup again and hobbled up the mountain path and out of sight. Fezzik glanced down towards the figure racing up the path towards him. Still a good distance away. Time enough to practice. Fezzik picked up a rock the size of a cannonball and aimed at a crack in the mountain 30 yards away. Swoosh! Dead center. He picked up a bigger rock and threw it at a shadow line twice as distant. Not quite swoosh. Two inches to the right. Fezzik was reasonably satisfied. Two inches off was still crushed ahead if you aim for the center. He groped around, found a perfect rock for throwing. It just fit his hand. Then he moved to the sharp turn in the path, backed off into the deepest shadow. Unseen, silent, he waited patiently with this killing rock, counting the seconds until the man in black would die. Fezzik Turkish women are famous for the size of their babies. The only happy newborn ever to weigh over 24 pounds upon entrance was a product of a southern Turkish union. Turkish hospital records list a total of 11 children who have weighed over 20 pounds at birth, and 95 more who weigh between 15 and 20. Now, all of these 106 cherubs did what babies usually do at birth. They lost 3 or 4 ounces, and it took them the better part of a week before they got it totally back. More accurately, 105 of them lost weight just after they were born. Not Fezzik. His first afternoon, he gained a pound. Since he weighed but 15, and since his mother gave birth two weeks early, the doctors weren't unduly concerned. It's because you came two weeks too soon, they explained to Fezzik's mother. That explains it. Actually, of course, it didn't explain anything. But whenever doctors are confused about something, which is really more frequently than any of us will do well to think about, they always snatch at something in the vicinity of the case and add, That explains it. If Fezzik's mother had come late, they would have said, Well, you came late. That explains it. Or, well, it was raining during delivery. This added weight is simply moisture. That explains it. A healthy baby doubles his birth weight in about six months and triples it in a year. When Fezzik was a year old, he weighed 85 pounds. Understand, he wasn't fat. He looked like a perfectly normal, strong 85-pound kid. Not all that normal, actually. He was pretty hairy for a one-year-old. By the time he reached kindergarten, he was ready to shave. He was the size of a normal man by this time, and all the other children made his life miserable. At first, naturally, they were scared to death. Even then, Fezzik looked fierce. But once they found out he was chicken, well, they weren't going to let an opportunity like that get away. Bully, bully, they taunted Fezzik during morning yogurt break. I'm not, Fezzik would say out loud. To himself, he would go, wooly, wooly. He would never dare to consider himself a poet because he wasn't anything like that. He just loved rhymes. Anything you said out loud, he rhymed it inside. Sometimes the rhymes made sense. Sometimes they didn't. Fezzik never cared much about the sense. All that ever mattered was the sound. Coward. Towered. I'm not. Then fight, one of them would say, and would swing all he had and hit Fezzik in the stomach. Confident that all Fezzik would do was go, oof, and stand there. Because he never hit back no matter what you did to him. Oof. Another swing. Another. A good stiff punch to the kidneys, maybe. Maybe a kick to the knee. It would go on like that until Fezzik would burst into tears and run away. One day at home, Fezzik's father called, Come here. Fezzik, as always, obeyed. Dry your tears, his mother said. Two children had beaten him very badly just before. He did what he could to stop crying. Fezzik, this can't go on, his mother said. They must stop picking on you. Kicking on you. I don't mind so much, Fezzik said. Well, you should mind, his father said. He was a carpenter with big hands. Come on outside. I'm going to teach you how to fight. Please, I don't want... 
Obey your father. They trooped out to the backyard. Make a fist, his father said. Fezzik did his best. His father looked at his mother, then at the heavens. He can't even make a fist, his father said. He's trying. He's only six. Don't be so hard on him. Fezzik's father cared for his son greatly, and he tried to keep his voice soft so Fezzik wouldn't burst out crying. But it wasn't easy. Honey, Fezzik's father said, look, when you make a fist, you don't put your thumb inside your fingers. You keep your thumb outside your fingers. Because if you keep your thumb inside your fingers and you hit somebody, what will happen is that you'll break your thumb. And that isn't good. Because the whole object when you hit somebody is to hurt the other guy, not yourself. Blurt. You know, because it rhymes with hurt. I don't want y'all to wonder where that one came from. Because he said hurt way back. He said to hurt the other guy, not yourself. But yeah, blurt rhymes with hurt. Also, y'all are welcome. In the movie, they didn't discuss Fezzik at all. Like, not a drop. So y'all are actually getting this backstory. Y'all are probably enamored. I don't want to hurt anybody, Daddy. I don't want you to hurt anyone, Fezzik. But if you know how to take care of yourself, and they know you know, they won't bother you anymore. Father. Father bother? Okay, cool. I don't mind so much. Well, we do, his mother said. They shouldn't pick on you, Fezzik, just because you need a shave. Back to the fists, his father said. Have we learned how? Fezzik made a fist again, this time with a thumb outside. He's a natural learner, his mother said. She cared for him as greatly as his father did. Now, hit me, Fezzik's father said. No, I don't want to do that. Hit your father, Fezzik. Maybe he doesn't know how to hit, Fezzik's father said. Maybe not, Fezzik's mother shook her head sadly. Watch, honey, Fezzik's father said. See, simple. You just make a fist like you already know and then pull back your arm a little and aim for you want to land and let go. Show your father what a natural learner you are, Fezzik's mother said. Make a punch. Hit him a good one. Fezzik made a punch towards his father's arm. Fezzik's father stared at the heavens again in frustration. He, he came close to your arm, Fezzik's mother said quickly, before her son's face could cloud. That was very good for a start, Fezzik. Tell him what a good start he made, she said to her husband. It was in the right general direction, Fezzik's father managed. If only I had been standing one yard further west, it would have been perfect. I'm very tired, Fezzik said. When you learn so much so fast, you get so tired. I do anyway. Please may I be excused? Not yet, Fezzik's mother said. Honey, please, hit me. Really hit me. Try. You're a smart boy. Hit me a good one. Tomorrow, Daddy, I promise. Tears began to form. Crying's not going to work, Fezzik, his father exploded. It's not going to work on me, and it's not going to work on your mother. You're going to do what I say, and what I say is you're going to hit me. If it takes all night, we're going to stand right here. And if it takes all week, we're going to stand right here. And if it... This was before emergency wards, and that was too bad. At least for Fezzik's father. Because there was no place to take him after Fezzik's punch landed. Except to his own bed. Where he remained with his eyes shut for a day and a half. Except for when the milkman came to fix his broken jaw. This wasn't before doctors you see. But in Turkey they hadn't gotten around to claiming the bone business yet. Milkmen were still in charge of bones. The logic being that since milk was so good for bones. Who would know more about broken bones than a milkman? Eh? When Fezzik's father was able to open his eyes as much as he wanted, they had a family talk, the three of them. You're very strong, Fezzik, his father said. Actually, that's not strictly true. What his father meant was, you're very strong, Fezzik. What came out was more like this. Ever since the milkman had wired his jaws together, all he could manage was a letter Z. But he had a very expressive face, and his wife understood him perfectly. He says, you're very strong, Fezzik. I thought I was, Fezzik answered. Last year, I hit a tree once when I was very mad. I knocked it down. 
It was a small tree, but still, I figured that had to mean something. He says he's given up being a carpenter, Fezzik. Oh no, Fezzik said. You'll be all well soon, Daddy. The milkman practically promised me. He wants to give up being a carpenter, Fezzik. But what will he do? Fezzik's mother answered this one herself. She and her husband have been up half the night agreeing on the decision. He's going to be your manager, Fezzik. Fighting is a national sport of Turkey. We're all going to be rich and famous. But mommy, daddy, I don't like fighting. Fezzik's father reached out and gently patted his son's knee. He said, it's going to be wonderful, his mother translated. Fezzik only burst into tears. They had his first professional match in the village of Sandiki on a steaming hot Sunday. Fezzik's parents had a terrible time getting him into the ring. They were absolutely confident of victory because they had worked very hard. They had taught Fezzik for three solid years before they mutually agreed that he was ready. Fezzik's father handled tactics and ring strategy, while his mother was more in charge of diet and training. And they had never been happier. Fezzik had never been more miserable. He was scared and frightened and terrified, all rolled into one. No matter how they reassured him, he refused to enter the arena. Because he knew something. Even though outside he looked 20 and his mustache was already coming along nicely, inside he was still this 9-year-old who liked rhyming things. No, he said. I won't. I won't. You can't make me. After all, we slaved for these three years, his father said. His jaw was almost as good as new now. He'll hurt me, Fezzik said. Life is pain, his mother said. Anybody who says different is selling something. Mm, stop. Now, that line right there is also ubiquitous. That line right there is perfect. That line right there is everything. And in the movie, because they didn't want to talk about Fezzik's part, they gave it to the man in black. Man in black didn't say that line. Boom, right there. Fezzik's mom said it in passing. Put it on a t-shirt. Life is pain. Anybody who tells you different is selling something. Fezzik's mom. You know the truth now. This is what happens when you read a book. Be proud of yourselves. I'm proud of you. Please, I'm not ready. I forget the holds. I'm not graceful and I fall down a lot. It's true. It was. Their only real fear was, were they rushing him? When the going gets tough, the tough get going, Fezzik's mother said. Get going, Fezzik, his father said. Fezzik stood his ground. Listen, we're not going to threaten you, Fezzik's parents said, more or less together. We all care for each other too much to pull any of that stuff. If you don't want to fight, nobody's going to force you. We'll just leave you alone forever. Fezzik's picture of hell was being alone forever. He had told him that when he was five. That is so scandalous. As my son would say when he was younger, that's scandocious. They literally are taking his deepest fear and using it against him to get him to do what they want. I mean, on the other hand, if you don't take out the trash, I'm going to take away all your stuff. If you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to whoop you. If you don't do this, I'm going to send you to your dad. If you don't do this, I'm going to send you to your mom. If you don't do this, I'm going to take away your music. If you don't do this, I'm going to take away your phone. Nope, still doesn't add up. I tried. I tried. Telling your kids you were going to leave them alone forever when they're nine is like, man, you know what though? Try that again when they're like 15. If you do that again, we'll just, if you don't do it, we'll just, you know, whatever, leave you alone forever. All right? I tried to threaten my son yesterday in a loving manner, gently, you know, something about his phone, I think. No, no. We were talking about how um, I had told my eldest son that I was going to change the password to Peacock so he could only watch the... I was going to let him watch the first two episodes of Bel Air and then I was going to change the password. Yeah, sinister. And my son was like, man, do I... 
will I ever do anything where you want to do something that petty to me? And I was like, no. I was like, he was like, because I could be petty. And I was like, I don't think he could be petty. And then he said some stuff that was so petty that it was literally sinister and scared me so much that I was like, you know what? You you want some ice cream? You like you want some ice cream. Let's go get some cake. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You hungry? You look hungry. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Nah. We we good. Here, hit my knuckle with your knuckle. Knuckle bump. We good? Don't ever do none of that stuff. Like, it was some seriously thoughtful pettiness that bordered on, I raised you? And also was on the corner of, I'm so proud of this kid. He's come a long way. They marched into the arena then to face a champion of Sandiki, who had been champion for 11 years, since he was 24. He was very graceful and wide and stood six feet in height, only half a foot less than Fezzik. Fezzik didn't stand a chance. He was too clumsy. He kept falling down or getting his holds on backwards, so they weren't holds at all. The champion of Sandiki toyed with him. Fezzik kept getting thrown down or falling down or tumbling down or stumbling down. He always got up and tried again, but the champion of Sandiki was much too fast for him and too clever and much, much too experienced. The crowd laughed and ate baklava and enjoyed the whole spectacle. Until Fezzik got his arms around the champion of Sandiki. The crowd grew very quiet then. Fezzik lifted him up. No noise. Fezzik squeezed and squeezed. That's enough now, Fezzik's father said. Fezzik laid the other man down. Thank you, he said. You're a wonderful fighter and I was lucky. The ex-champion of Sandiki kind of grunted. Raise your hands. You're the winner, his mother reminded. Fezzik stood there in the middle of the ring with his hands raised. Boo! said the crowd. Animal. Ape. Gorilla. Boo! They did not linger long in Sandiki. As a matter of fact, it wasn't very safe for them to linger long anywhere from then on. They fought the champion of Ispir. Boo! The champion of Samal. Boo! They fought in Balu. They fought in Zile. Boo! I don't care what anyone says, Fezzik's mother told him one winter afternoon. You're my son and you're wonderful. It was dark and gray, and they were hot-footing it out of Constantinople just as fast as they could because Fezzik had just demolished their champion before most of the crowd was even seated. This is before it was Istanbul. Yeah, it was just Constantinople. It wasn't Istanbul, it was Constantinople, not Istanbul. It's Constantinople, not Istanbul, to Constantinople. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. I'm not wonderful, Fezzik said. They're right to insult me. I'm too big. Whenever I fight, it looks like I'm picking on somebody. Maybe, Fezzik's father began a little hesitantly. Maybe, Fezzik, if you just possibly kind of lose a few fights, sort of, they might not yell at us so much. The wife whirled on the husband. The boy's 11 and already you want him to throw fights? Nothing like that. No, don't get all excited, but... Maybe if he'd even looked like he was suffering a little, they let up on us. I'm suffering, Fezzik said. He was. He was. Let it show a little more. I'll try, Daddy. That's a good boy. I can't help being strong. It's not my fault. I don't even exercise. I think it's time to head for Greece, Fezzik's father said then. We've beaten everybody in Turkey who will fight us, and athletics began in Greece. No one appreciates talent like the Greeks. I just hate it when they go, Boo! Fezzik said. He did. Now his power picture of hell is being left alone with everybody going, Boo! at him forever. They'll love you in Greece, Fezzik's mother said. They fought in Greece. Ah! Ah! was Greek for Boo! Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Romania. Boo! They tried Asia. 
the jiu-jitsu champion of Korea, the karate champion of Siam, the kung fu champion of all India. See note on ah! In Mongolia, his parents died. We've done everything we can for you, Fezzik. Good luck, they said, and they were gone. It was a terrible thing, a plague that swept everything before it. Fezzik would have died too, only naturally he never got sick. Alone, he continued on, across the Gobi Desert, hitching rides sometimes with passing caravans. And it was there that he learned how to make them stop booing. Fight groups. It all began in the caravan on the Gobi, when the caravan head said, I'll bet my camel drivers can take you. There were only three of them, so Fezzik said fine. He'd try, and he did, and he won, naturally. And everyone seemed happy. Fezzik was thrilled. He never fought just one person again if it was possible. For a while, he traveled from place to place, battling gangs for local charities. But his business head was never much, and besides, doing things alone was even less appealing to him now that he was into his late teens than it had been before. He joined a traveling circus. All the other performers grumbled at him because, they said, he was eating more than his share of food. So he stayed pretty much to himself, except when it came to his work. But then, one night, when Fezzik had just turned 20, he got the shock of his life. The booing was back again. He could not believe it. He had just squeezed half a dozen men into submission, cracked the heads of half a dozen more. What did they want from him? The truth was simply this. He had gotten too strong. He would never measure himself, but everybody whispered he must be over seven feet tall. And he would never step on a scale, but people claimed he weighed 400. And not only that, he was quick now. All the years of experience had made him almost inhuman. He knew all the tricks. Could counter all the holds. Animal. Ape. Gorilla. Boo! That night, alone in his tent, Fezzik wept. He was a freak. Speak. He still loved rhymes. A two-eyed cyclops. Eye drops. Like the tears that were dropping now. Dropping from his half-closed eyes. But the next morning, he had gotten control of himself. At least he still had his circus friends around him. That week, the circus fired him. The crowds were booing them now, too. And the fat lady threatened to walk out. And the little people were fuming, and that was it for Fezzik. This was in the middle of Greenland, and as anybody knows, Greenland then as now was the loneliest place on the earth. In Greenland, there is one person for every 20 square miles of real estate. Probably the circus was pretty stupid taking a booking there, but that wasn't the point. The point was, Fezzik was alone, in the loneliest place in the world, just sitting there on a rock watching the circus pull away. He was still sitting there the next day when Vizzini the Sicilian found him. Vizzini flattered him, promised to keep the booze away. Vizzini needed Fezzik, but not half as much as Fezzik needed Vizzini. As long as Vizzini was around, you couldn't be alone. Whatever Vizzini said, Fezzik did. And if that meant crushing the head of the man in black, so be it. But not by ambush. Not the coward's way. Nothing a sportsman-like. His parents had always taught him to go by the rules. Fezzik stood in shadow. The great rot tightened his great hand. He could hear the footsteps of the man in black coming nearer. Nearer. Fezzik leapt from hiding and threw the rock with incredible power and perfect accuracy. It smashed into a boulder a foot away from the face of the man in black. I did that on purpose, Fezzik said then, picking up another rock, holding it ready. I didn't have to miss. I believe you, the man in black said. They stood facing each other on the narrow mountain path. Now what happens? Asked the man in black. We face each other as God intended, Fezzik said. No tricks, no weapons. Skill against skill alone. You mean you'll put down your rock, and I'll put down my sword, and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people. Is that it? If you'd rather, I can kill you now, Fezzik said gently, and he raised the rock to throw. I'm giving you a chance. So you are, and I accept it, said the man in black, and he began to take off his sword and scabbard. 
Although, frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your favor at hand fighting. I'll tell you what I tell everybody, Fezzik explained. I cannot help being the biggest and the strongest. It's not my fault. I'm not blaming you, said the man in black. Let's get to it then, Fezzik said, and he dropped his rock and got in a fighting position, watching as the man in black slowly moved towards him. For a moment, Fezzik felt almost wistful. This was clearly a good fellow, even if he had killed Inigo. He didn't complain or try and beg or bribe. He just accepted his fate. No complaining, nothing like that. Obviously a criminal of character. Was he a criminal, though? Fezzik wondered. Surely the mask would indicate that. Or was it worse than that? Was he disfigured? His face burned away by acid, perhaps. Or perhaps born hideous. Why do you wear a mask and hood? Fezzik asked. I think everyone will in the near future, was the man in black's reply. They're terribly comfortable. And he's right. We do wear masks. They face each other on the mountain path. There was a moment's pause. Then they engaged. Fezzik let the man in black fiddle around for a bit. Tested the man's strength, which was considerable for someone who wasn't a giant. He let the man in black faint and dodge and try a hold here or hold there. Then, when he was quite sure the man in black would not go to his maker embarrassed, Fezzik locked his arms tight around. Fezzik lifted and squeezed and squeezed. Then he took the remains of the man in black, snapped him one way, snapped him the other, cracked him with one hand in the neck, with the other at the spine base, locked his legs up, rolled his limp arms around them, and tossed the entire bundle of what had once been human into a nearby crevice. 916-6331. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to end there. That was a theory anyway. In fact, what happened was this. Fezzik lifted and squeezed, and the man in black slipped free. Hmm, thought Fezzik. That certainly was a surprise. I thought for sure I had him. You're very quick, Fezzik complimented. And a good thing, too, said the man in black. Then they engaged again. This time, Fezzik did not give the man in black a chance to fiddle. He just grabbed him, swung him around his head once, twice, smashed his skull against the nearest boulder, pounded him, pummeled him, gave him one final squeeze for good measure, and tossed the remains of what once had been allotted into a nearby crevice. Those were his intentions, anyway. In actuality, he never even got through the grabbing part with much success, because no sooner had Fezzik's great hands reached out than the man in black dropped and spun and twisted and was loose and free and still quite alive. I don't understand a thing that's happening, Fezzik thought. Could I be losing my strength? Could there be a, a mountain disease that takes your strength? There was a desert disease that took my parents' strength. That must be it. I must have caught a plague. But if that's it, then why isn't he weak? No. I must still be strong. It has to be something else. Now what could it be? Suddenly he knew. He had not fought against one man in so long, he had all but forgotten how. He had been fighting groups and gangs and bunches for so many years that the thought of having but a single opponent was slow in making itself known to him. Because you fought them entirely different. When there were 12 against you, you made certain moves, tried certain holds, acted in certain ways. When there was but one, you had to completely readjust yourself. Quickly now, Fezzik went back through time. How had he fought the champion of Sandiki? He flashed through that fight in his mind. They reminded himself of all the other victories against other champions. The men from Isbil and Samal and Bolu and Zyle. He remembered fleeing Constantinople because he had beaten their champion so quickly, so easily. Yes, Fezzik thought, of course. And suddenly, he readjusted his style to what it once had been. But by that time, the man in black had him by the throat. The man in black was riding him, and his arms were locked across Fezzik's windpipe, one in front, one behind. Fezzik reached back, but the man in black was hard to grasp. Fezzik could not get his arms around to his back and dislodge the enemy. Fezzik ran at a boulder, and at the last moment, spun around so that the man in black received the main force of the charge. It was a terrible jolt. Fezzik knew it was. 
but the grip on his windpipe grew ever tighter. Fezzik charged the boulder again, again spun, and again he knew the power of the blow the man in black had taken. But still, the grip remained. Fezzik clawed at the man in black's arms. He pounded his giant fists against him. By now, he had no air. Fezzik continued to struggle. He could feel a hollowness in his legs now. He could see the world beginning to pale. But he did not give up. He was a mighty Fezzik, lover of rhymes, and you did not give up, no matter what. Now the hollowness was in his arms and the world was snowing. Fezzik went to his knees. He pounded still, but feebly. He fought still, but his blows would not have harmed a child. No air. There was no more air. There was no more anything. Not for Fezzik. Not in this world. I'm beaten. I'm going to die, he thought, just before he fell onto the mountain path. He was only half wrong. There's an instant between unconsciousness and death. And as a giant pitched onto the rocky path, that instant happened. And just before it happened, the man in black let go. He staggered to his feet and leaned against a boulder until he could walk. Fezzik lay sprawled, faintly breathing. The man in black looked around for a rope to secure the giant. Gave up the search almost as soon as he had begun. What good were ropes against strength like this? He would simply snap them. The man in black made his way back to where he had dropped his sword. He put it back on. Two down and the hardest one to go. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Spotify uh, It takes like 13 seconds Leave a review on Podchaser Copy and paste that in the good pods Copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts You can donate to the show at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast Or at BuyMeACoffee.com slash SSCast Or on the Good Pods app there's a tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>